Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 221. We'll begin the book of Daniel with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 3 and follow with some thoughts about martyrdom. We're going from strange to stranger in the latter half of the Ketuvim. If one wonders why Esther made it into the canon with its lack of divine direction on brand themes and carnivalesque violence, the book of Daniel presents other canonical challenges. First, it's clearly the latest addition to the canon. Did it slip in under the wire? Robert Alter and legions of other biblical scholars date the writing of the second half of Daniel to the years between 167 and 165 BCE, specifically because of the details it relates about the persecution that closely mirrors that of Antiochus Epiphanes against the Jewish people, specifically the prohibition of temple worship. Daniel's tone is closer to that of the apocryphal texts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and even the Book of Revelation in the New Testament than any of the earlier canonical texts. Daniel is also written in two languages. The opening, chapter 1, and the first four verses of chapter 2 are in Hebrew. Then the text shifts to Aramaic and remains there until the end of chapter 7, and then back to Hebrew at the end, which makes sense as by the 2nd century BCE, most Jews were speaking Aramaic instead of Hebrew. Aramaic was the language of the ancient Near East, kind of like English today, except the Aramaic of Daniel was the Aramaic of empires, much more formal than the emergent rabbinic Aramaic that would find textual expression in the Talmud and Midrash. The Hebrew of Daniel, Alter says, is, quote, bad Hebrew prose. The syntax is often slack, at points unintelligible, parts of speech are sometimes inappropriate, the idioms not infrequently sound odd or perhaps are simply wrong. The writer overworks certain Hebrew terms, as if he did not have other more apt ones available. The verbs, for example, amad, stand, and hechazik, hold, or make strong, are awkwardly used over and over in quick sequence in a number of different senses, some of them unwarranted by earlier Hebrew. As for the prose itself, there are no real characters for us readers to relate to. Daniel and his three pals are almost archetypes, and Daniel as dream interpreter could have been the result of a find and replace of the Joseph story in Genesis. And whereas Esther, for example, is lacking a god of history, Daniel is all about history, a familiar one. Whatever happens will be determined, of course, and inevitable, and come from God. And when I say determined, I mean that God already knows what will happen, but this knowledge is also accessible to humans. Daniel, as we will see, can decrypt the code. Alter points out that for this reason, both Christians and Jews use the book of Daniel as the jumping off point for calculating the end of days. And so, despite all of these quirks and quibbles, Daniel is canon and begins its tale, quote, in the third year of the kingship of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylonia, came to Jerusalem and lay siege against it. And Adonai gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and the best of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and the vessels he brought to his god's treasure house. This was the first exile in 597 BCE, and it's an exile of the 1%, a precursor to the disaster that would follow in 586, 
with the sacking of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the exiling of most of Judea's Jews. Nebuchadnezzar brought the elites back to Babylon and set their young to work. Quote, young men who were without blemish and goodly in appearance and discerning in all wisdom and possessing knowledge and understanding matters, and who had the strength to serve in the king's palace to teach them book learning and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king apportioned for them for each day of the king's royal provisions and from his drinking wine to rear them for three years that the best of them should serve in the king's presence. Among them was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who were given Babylonian names by the chief of the king's eunuchs. Daniel would be known as Belshazzar, and his three friends would be known as... This seems like a lucrative arrangement, except Daniel opts out of the food and wine portion of the program because Daniel says it's defiling. The other three lads apparently go along with this plan, and the chief eunuch who took a liking to Daniel was caught in a bind. If he allows the four to abstain from food and drink, they will look terrible because they're basically starving, which will make the chief look bad for letting this tomfoolery happen on his watch. So Daniel proposes that he allow them to go without food or drink for 10 days to see what happens. And wouldn't you know it, quote, at, at the end of the 10 days, their appearance was seen to be better and plumper in flesh than all the young men who had eaten the king's provisions. And the overseer kept bearing away their provisions and their drinking wine and giving them grains. And to these young men, the four of them, did God give knowledge and discernment in all books and wisdom. And Daniel understood all visions and dreams. <laughs> The four were brought before the king who relied on them, quote, in every matter of discerning wisdom that the king asked of them. He found them ten times better than all the soothsayers and wizards who were in all his kingdom. Daniel remained in the service of the king until the first year of King Cyrus, that is 538 BCE, when the Achaemenids conquered Babylon and displaced the Babylonians as the reigning empire of the ancient Near East. But chapter two doesn't pick up from the arrival of the Persians, we return to the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which, if you were paying attention, happens a year before the events in chapter 1, which happened in the third year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So let's leave this chronological mess alone for a moment and focus on the action that's taking place in the king's bedchamber that night. Bum, chicka, wow, wow. <laughs> I mean his night terrors, which disturbed the king so profoundly that he summoned all of his soothsayers, wizards, and magicians to explain the meaning of his dreams. And here's where we shift into Aramaic, because that's probably what the original dialogue was in. So after the exchange of pleasantries and pufferies, we get down to it. But the king doesn't tell the gathered experts what the dream was. He challenges those present not only to decipher the dream, but to tell him what he dreamt. Well, you can imagine what was going through the heads of the soothsayers, wizards, and magicians until they got up the nerve to finally say, quote, There is no man on earth who can tell the word of the king because no great and powerful king has asked a thing like this of any soothsayer or wizard or Chaldean. And the matter that the king has asked is grave, and there are no others that can tell it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. The king's response is swift, death to all of these bums, kill them all, which 
leaves Daniel and his three pals in a bit of a pickle as they are on the hook for this as well, being in the king's service as soothsayers of a sort. But fortunately for Daniel, the answer comes to him in a night vision. He tells the king's chief executioner that all the following information comes from God and that he will tell the king everything as long as he does not have all of Babylonia's sages killed. You can see where this is going. Daniel has an audience with the king, gives God all the credit for what he's about to say, and reveals every last detail of the king's dream, of the statue composed of all kinds of materials, a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, etc., etc. But then a stone strikes the statue's feet and shatters it and becomes a giant mountain. Daniel then explains that all the pieces of the statue represent monarchies, starting with the most powerful Babylonia and ending with the schleppiest in the feet. The rock represents the final kingdom established by God that will displace the others and remain steadfast for all time. The king, brimming with appreciation for the insight, rewards Daniel handsomely. And speaking of statues, chapter 3 begins with the king erecting a statue of gold, 60 cubits high in the Dura Valley. He orders all his empire's VIPs to attend the dedication ceremony and hear the new law, quote, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lute, the zither, the lyre, the flute, and all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold statue the king of Uchadnezer has set up. And whoever does not fall down at once shall be cast into the furnace of blazing fire. If chapter 2 had Joseph and Egypt vibes, chapter 3 channels the scroll of Esther because very quickly the king is informed that, quote, There are certain Jewish men whom you have appointed over the work of the province of Babylonia, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These have paid no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your God, and they do not worship the gold statue that you set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are brought before the king and they remain steadfast in their faith in God, which enrages the king, and quote, he spoke out and said to stoke the furnace seven times hotter than it was wont to be stoked. And to the valiant warriors of his army, he said to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire, which they did. But rather quickly, quote, King Nebuchadnezzar was astounded and arose in haste. He spoke out and said to his counselors, Did we not throw three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, Indeed, O king. He answered and said, Why, I see four men walking unbound within the fire, and there is no hurt in them, and the appearance of the fourth is like a divine being. Then Nebuchadnezzar did approach the gate of the furnace of the blazing fire. He spoke out and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Then did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out from within the fire. Nebuchadnezzar is moved by what he sees and sends out a decree that, quote, any people, nation, or tongue that speaks ill of the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut to pieces, and their house shall be turned into a dung heap, for there is no other god that can rescue like this. Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin, folio page 74b, it states, quote, Rabbi Yochanan says in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Yehot Sadak, the sages who discussed this issue counted the votes of those assembled and concluded in the upper story of the house of Nitza in the city of Lod. With regard to all other transgressions in the Torah, if a person is told, transgress this prohibition and you will not be killed, 
he may transgress that prohibition and not be killed, except for those of idol worship, forbidden sexual relations, and bloodshed. To recap, one must allow oneself to be killed rather than commit these three transgressions. Sometimes we make rules because we'd like the rules to bring a world into existence that doesn't exist yet. Sometimes we make rules to fix the world that already exists. What kind of rule is the one about martyrdom? Well, if we look at the names of the rabbis quoted in this selection from Sanhedrin, we learn that Rabbi Shimon ben Yehot Sadak, who is name-checked here by his student Rabbi Yochanan, lived in a transitional time between the period of the Tanaim and the period of the Amoraim. And what he learned was a teaching of the sages, so it was a matter of common practice in his time. But when did this meeting in Nitza's attic in Lod take place? It is believed that this meeting took place during the Hadrianic persecutions. So, a little backstory. In 133 CE, 60 years or so after the Great Revolt was finally suppressed by Roman forces at the desert fortress of Masada, we decided it would be a good idea to take another run at the Romans. This time, however, instead of being dragged into conflict with Rome by extremists, the uprising was spearheaded by a charismatic military leader named Bar Kokhba. We talked about Bar Kokhba and more specifically about his number one fan, Rabbi Akiva, in episode 214. Bar Kokhba faced down three Roman legions and at least 17 auxiliary units. One of these legions was likely obliterated by insurgents. Because Bar Kokhba wouldn't engage the Romans in open combat, the Romans adopted a scorched earth strategy, leveling hundreds of villages and outposts. The rebels often hid in underground tunnels, so the Romans would either starve or burn them out. Many Jews, soldiers, civilians, women, and children often killed themselves before falling into Roman hands. By 135, the revolt had been extinguished and Bar Kokhba killed, but only after enormous losses on both sides. It was at this point when the Roman Emperor Hadrian decided to open up a second front and wage war on Judaism itself. He ordered the selling of all Jewish prisoners into slavery, forbade the teaching of the Torah and the ordination of rabbis, renamed the province Syria-Palestina, and changed Jerusalem's name to Elia Capitolina, although scholars are divided over whether the name change happened before or after the revolt. And either way, Jews were prohibited from getting anywhere near the city. Synagogues across Judea were replaced with Roman temples. Now, many prominent rabbis violated these edicts and martyred themselves in the process. Jewish society was on the precipice, and it seemed that increasing numbers of individuals, when facing the ultimate choice, opted to die rather than live. Which, I guess, is why the sages stepped in and regulated this impulse. Only under three, count them, three circumstances are you to submit to being killed by the enemy rather than doing whatever it takes to survive. And note the language. It's not three circumstances where you're permitted to take your own life rather than transgress. You're supposed to let yourself be killed rather than transgress. As we march forward in Jewish history from this second century moment, we have numerous examples where Jews were confronted with fateful dilemmas such as these. The events of Bar Kokhba's time were preceded by stories of Jews resisting the Seleucid Greek attempt to Hellenize them. These accounts abound in the pages of 2nd Maccabees. However, the most notable until the 20th century happened in the Rhineland. 
after Pope Urban II summoned all Christians to arm themselves and liberate the Holy Land from the hands of the Fatimids and Seljuk Turks. And so mobs of predominantly poor Christians, numbering in the thousands, embarked on the People's Crusade. When they passed through Germany, they massacred almost every Jew in their path. The largest contingent of this mob was led by Count Emiko of Flanheim. Amongst his followers was a group who worshipped a goose they believed was possessed by the Holy Spirit, but there were also noblemen and knights among them. And this rabble set upon the Jewish communities of the Rhineland with a ferocity unseen since the suppression of the Bar Kokhba revolt. They gave Jews a choice, conversion, exile, or death. Some converted, but many more opted for death, and they did so in a spectacular fashion. The Crusader Chronicles is an anonymous Hebrew narrative history produced in 1140. It recounts the story, among other stories, of Rachel, the daughter of Rabbi Yitzchak ben Asher, who was in Magenza on May 27, 1096. Quote, She said to her friends, I have four children. Do not spare even them, lest the Christians come, take them alive, and bring them up in their false religion. Through them, too, sanctify the name of the holy God. So one of her companions came and picked up a knife to slaughter her son. But when the mother of the children saw the knife, she let out a loud and bitter lament. And she beat her face and breast, crying, Where are thy mercies, O God? In the bitterness of her soul, she said to her friend, Do not slay Isaac in the presence of his brother Aaron, lest Aaron see his brother's death and run away. The woman then took the lad Isaac, who was small and very pretty, and she slaughtered him while the mother spread out her sleeves to receive the blood, catching it in her garment instead of a basin. When the child Aaron saw that his brother Isaac was slain, he screamed again and again, Mother, mother, do not butcher me, and ran and hid under a chest. She had two daughters, also who still lived at home, Bella and Matrona, beautiful young girls, the children of her husband, Rabbi Yehuda. The girls took the knife and sharpened it themselves that it should not be nicked. Then the woman who bared their necks and sacrificed them to the Lord God of hosts, who has commanded us not to change his pure religion, but to be perfect with him, as it is written, quote, Perfect shall you be with the Lord your God. When this righteous woman had made an end of sacrificing her three children to their creator, she then raised her voice and called out to her son Aaron, Aaron, where are you? You also I will not spare, nor will I have mercy. Then she dragged him out by his foot from under the chest where he had hidden himself, and she sacrificed him before God, the high and exalted. She put her children next to her body, two on each side, covering them with her two sleeves, and there they lay struggling in the agony of death. When the enemy seized the room, they found her sitting and wailing over them. Show us the money that is under your sleeves, they said to her, but when it was the slaughtered children they saw, they struck her and killed her upon her children and her spirit flew away, and her soul found peace at last. To her applied the biblical verse, the mother was dashed in pieces with her children. When the father saw the death of his four beautiful, lovely children, he cried aloud, weeping and wailing, and threw himself upon the sword in his hand, so that his bowels came out, and he wallowed in blood on the road together with the dying who were convulsed, rolling in their life's blood. The rabbis in Nietzsche's attic might not have lionized the decisions made by Jews across the Rhineland in the manner the anonymous author did, nor would they condone it, but they would have possibly understood how a parent might choose to murder their child rather than let them fall into the hands of the enemy. This almost happened 
in the book of Genesis with Isaac on the altar atop Mount Moriah at God's command. This almost happened in the scroll of Esther. Mordechai was willing to pay the ultimate price instead of bowing down before Haman, except bowing down before a disreputable jerk is not idol worship, nor is it forbidden sexual relations or bloodshed. However, as the anonymous chronicler mentions, quote, Thus were the precious children of Zion, the Jews of Magenza, tried with ten trials like Abraham, our father, and like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They tied their sons as Abraham tied Isaac, his son, and they received upon themselves with a willing soul the yoke of the fear of God, the king of kings, of kings, the holy one, blessed be he, rather than deny and exchange the religion of our king for an abhorrent offshoot. Daniel's three chums merit appropriate mention here because their tribulation followed the pattern to the letter. They were commanded to worship an idol, they refused, and were thus condemned to be bound up and thrown into a fiery furnace, which they submitted to without protest. They established the tradition, followed by Rabbi Akiva, who was apprehended by the Romans for defying the emperor's edict and tortured alongside nine other great sages. And the thousands of Jews of the Rhineland during the People's Crusade and the millions more who were murdered between 1933 and 1945. Our history for so many is defined by these stories and their martyrdom. But here's the thing. Anania, Mishael, and Azariah, the Tanakh's archetypal martyrs, survived. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 222, when we continue in the Book of Daniel with chapters 4 through 7.